Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, we saw in the news that Mint, the Elixir HTTP client, now has an official WebSocket client that sits on top of it. The WebSocket library was created by NFI Brokerage and has been adopted as an officially maintained Mint project. This library was originally created as part of a larger project called Slipstream. Stay tuned because in a few weeks we'll be releasing an episode where we talk more in depth about the Slipstream library with one of the maintainers. And next, Jose Valim announced that Dashbit is sponsoring part-time development of Sonic Pi for the next six months. It's a super cool project. I first learned about it back when I was active in the Ruby community. Sonic Pi is a code-based music creation and performance tool. So you actually live code in Ruby using functions and, and different calls that the library is exporting and making available to you to interactively code up music. So you can create like drum loops and then write another little function and add another layer on top of that. And the project's been around since 2014. Well, apparently Elixir is finding some use in the project now, which is really cool because I think Elixir is super well suited for that. So we reached out to Sam Aaron, who's the creator and maintainer of the project, to learn a little bit more about how Elixir is involved. And I was surprised to learn how long Erlang has been involved in the project. We learned that Sonic Pi has an IO scheduler for sending out well-timed MIDI and network packets that was originally written by Joe Armstrong in Erlang. It also has an Erlang IO server for receiving MIDI and network packets. The Sonic Pi project was distributing their own bespoke minified version of the Beam and associated Erlang binaries using eScript that were written by Joe. I thought that was really cool. I remember a long time ago, I heard how Joe Armstrong was experimenting with music and the Beam scheduler, and he actually created the Rachmaninoff, the, the famous piano piece, where each individual note was scheduled as like a play this note after this amount of time just to see how that would actually work out. And he said it worked out beautifully and the scheduler was worked awesome for that. And I just thought that was a crazy, you know, every note was individually scheduled anyway. So I, I'm now wondering if that was part of any of this that he was involved with. I don't know. So as part of Sonic Pi's version four development, Sam has also integrated a full Elixir distribution and now uses mix to create a release. There's a lot of internal functionality that he wants to port from Ruby to Elixir, including a new front-end DSL. And so the DSL is the part that you write in Ruby. So that'd be very interesting to see if that becomes more Elixir-focused there. To make Sonic Pi work, Sam had to do a lot of bespoke work on threads. A lot of that was in C++ as well, including implementing his own rough version of supervision trees, which he expects will port beautifully over to Elixir. So I understand Sam is looking to also involve LiveView in the project, but we'll have to wait and hear more about that from him. I just thought that was really cool. We really hope to have a, an interview with him soon. Gosh, there's some history there. Never realized it. That's pretty cool. GitHub gave Elixir another shout out in a recent blog post. This blog post is about bringing code navigation to the community. So we've got a link to it. You can read more about it. And, and I know that we've we've talked about 
you know this before that GitHub has code navigation now, but they continue to talk about it and continue to, to like show that Elixir is like a good example of, of how it was brought about from the community. So they announced the availability of search-based code navigation for the Elixir programming language, saying it's the first example of a language community, you know, writing and submitting their own code for the search-based, you know, code navigation. So I don't know, man. I, I think I think Elixir's pretty good community. Like <laughs> to to be able to, to do that kind of stuff, you know, that that's great. A common question, you know, that the GitHub team gets is when will my favorite language be supported? So they've been working to empower language communities to integrate with their code navigation systems. And how they're doing that is 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 using the tree sitter parser and, and extends it using the tree sitter's query language to enable the code navigation bits. I think probably for the last like six months, right, we've had news items that have talked about tree sitter in some way, uh, probably, you know, mentioning NeoVim. NeoVim is a code editor, you know, text based that that started integrating with tree sitter. So there was a, a first push there just to get that to work in NeoVim. But TreeSitter has got a lot of features on it. Like it also empowers syntax highlighting in NeoVim. Now it's empowering, you know, code navigation with GitHub querying. There's other smart things you can do, like navigating up and out of scope or selecting your cursor, like selecting the inner scope of something of of where you're currently, you know, sitting at. Anyway, lots of cool things that TreeSitter is doing. I think we're going to get to talk to some of the contributors for the TreeSitter parser. So we'll get to learn more about it, I'm sure. And next, the NX project reaches two major milestones really at the same time. There are two different backends that NX provides. So there's EXLA, which is support for Google's XLA Accelerated Linear Algebra Compiler. And there's also TorchX, which is the LibTorch backend for NX. And both of these have been released to Hex, which means you can just do a mix install EXLA or TorchX. And previously to this, I believe you'd have to just import it from the GitHub repo in your mix EXS file. So now they're both available. That's a major milestone because I think it's a showing of a level of confidence and a level of completeness that's saying this is ready. Very excited to see that. I know Sean Moriarty has been very involved with getting these things started, but a lot of people in the community have gotten involved in helping to push them forward. So congrats to the whole team. And last up, the WhatsApp Erlang implementation of the Raft consensus algorithm has been open sourced. A little snippet from the project page reads, War Raft is a Raft library in Erlang by WhatsApp. It provides an Erlang implementation to obtain consensus among replicated state machines. Consensus is a fundamental problem in fault-tolerant distributed systems. WarRaft has been used as a consensus provider in WhatsApp message storage, which is a large-scale, strongly consistent storage system across five-plus data centers. We will drop a link in the show notes. There's actually a really cool GitHub page about the Raft consensus algorithm. You can check it out. It has some really great visualizations to help you understand what it is and how it works. And there's also numerous talks online about it. So check that out if you're interested. Yeah, and the one last thing to note about that is the project is Apache licensed coming out of the WhatsApp team. So I just thought that was really cool that the Erlang team made the extra effort to open source this and release it as a, an open source project. So very cool. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Dominic Letts. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. 
So Dominic, I'm happy to have you here because we talked with you once previously, episode 69, where you talked previously about some of the things you were working on, but you've had some major milestones since then. We wanted to check back in and see, one, how you did this. How did you make this thing happen? So you have created a project called Diode. And the Diode app is available on Google Play Store and the iOS App Store. But what is most remarkable to me is that it is written in Elixir, that Elixir is actually running on the device, on an Apple App Store thing that Apple somehow approved. And I always assumed that was not possible, that they would ever approve it. So I am really excited to learn how you went about this, what kind of hurdles you had to overcome, Anything that you know can inspire us and help all of us other Elixir-loving developers to say, hey, maybe I could actually put something that could go on my device. Anyway, I'm excited to talk about that. But before we get there, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I'm actually right now in Berlin, in Germany. And that's also where, where I'm from. But that's not where I initially learned about Elixir. So I've been living for seven years in Taiwan and came back three years ago now. And in Taiwan, it was where I ran into like Erlang first and then a really vibrant Alexia community on that, especially in Taipei, the capital city. W- went to the first meetups there and really it's an interesting setup. There's Ruby and Alexia, those communities really tied together and having really good and big meetups. And so from there, I fell in love with First, there was Erlang as a very unique way of doing things, but then even more so into Alexia because I really like the community around it and the the way it's alive compared to Erlang sometimes in, 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 in certain regards. And um, started also contributing and really enjoyed the open source part of that. And so when we, uh, through work, basically came to creating this new project, Diode, Alexia was my tool of choice. And... We went there from this being server-focused because it's blockchain technology. So there's always servers first and then command line client second. And then eventually as like the product that we were building evolved, we realized we also need like clients for non-developers, for people who want to have UIs and graphical user interfaces. And we then had this challenge in front of us, like how can we get those UIs built out of all the source code we have written already in, in LX here. And that's basically where it started. And that's how I got here. And then now here I'm active as well, as much as I can because of COVID in the local community. And here in Berlin, the meetup is also the first time I spoke about Elixir Desktop, I think. And that's the other thing is Elixir Desktop. We talked with you in episode 69 about Elixir Desktop and some of the work there. I'm excited to talk about that again and just see where are things today and and what can we do with that. Last time we talked, it was October 2021. And in that interview, we learned how you created the Diode app. Before we dig into how you created it, let's talk about what it was that you created that is currently available on the Apple App Store. So what is this app? That's a great question. So we started out really with uh, being able to create like self-custody for your data. And this is a bit like my background in Germany. Like we are very data privacy focused, uh, I would say here in Germany and probably in like the greater EU. And so that was always a mindset I had when putting files into Dropbox or putting files into Google Drive. 
and then seeing at the same time like those walled gardens of big platforms becoming more and more powerful but also more and more data grabby and that they actually look at your data use ai algorithms to look at your pictures and we heard stories from apple actually scanning everything you have on icloud and that always was something i was worried about and where i thought like hey why can't i just have my data under my control but at the same time i want this great experience as we have learned it from google drive and icloud and i want to be able to sync it and this is really where i think the burst of diode came from and this is why the this initial product we have is called diode drive and it's really like this uh, file distribution file sharing but it's always under your control we talked a bit earlier here about walled gardens i think this really goes for me about this protocols versus platforms so if i think back at the internet in the early days and we had http and email those are like the classic protocols and nobody owned them like everyone was contributing a bit and everyone set up like a web server and then we had like the internet and later as things evolved we got those platforms and now we have like whatsapp and facebook and and these huge owners of everything it's so sad because now this is totally centralized and they own it and they have more power over it and then they start doing things that are more shady and i think the best example of that is being Google, starting out with don't do evil and then eventually removing that from their internal docs. <laughs> it's okay to be a little evil now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would really like to be participant in that meeting. Like, how can you justify to remove that? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's also like going from protocols to platforms like, has a lot of benefits, right? Because they can set up servers and you can make it so convenient to actually use it. And this is where fast like blockchain was coming in because it's like that piece where you can actually have protocols that run autonomously like you don't have to set up a server you don't have to have an owner of a server but you can have a protocol that ha suddenly has a server-side component like in the blockchain but it's at the same time autonomous so it's kind of driverless cars but for protocols and so we can make a lot more powerful protocols that we were not able to do like file syncing as convenient as google drive does it was basically not possible without a server component with this in mind, we started creating Diode Drive. And there's many others really in this decentralized ecosystem now creating this kind of much more powerful protocols that directly compete with the central organizations. So one point I have to bring up and just ask this question, because I know there are going to be listeners out there who hear you talk about blockchain and say, oh, no, they've created a token. Is there a coin associated with this? What, what do you, when you say blockchain, does that involve all the other things that people think about? I think that's a real problem for sure. And it does, it does have its gas. So like for blockchain applications, you unfortunately need this kind of gas to ensure people don't like DDoS attack the network and just use like all the capacity for something else. And so it's associated with that. I don't know if there's like a technical mean to get rid of that. There's a technical mean to get rid of many of the problems, not yet out of all of them. So we are following Ethereum, which I think is like, in my opinion, the purest and where it's clearest to me that they have good intentions and there's a, a leader who has good intentions and wants to bring this like the build this for the bigger good and so as they develop and improve like the for example the energy consumption we follow them and we copy exactly basically what they do because i think they do the right things okay so now we know that this app exists and it's a a, a decentralized file sharing collaborative kind of thing where I can have access to these documents and my files on my device and they are synced 
to somewhere else as well, like to other devices, and I can share them. In terms of an iOS app, I'm hearing that there's uh, file system access permissions that I might even be accessing contacts lists or, or things like that. When we talked last time and you shared that you were already in the Google Play Store, and then you had said we were still working on getting into the Apple App Store, you know, secretly, I never thought you would actually get there, not because of any technical challenge or lack of ability on your part, but that Apple would say no way because Elixir is too dynamic. You know, you have the ability to download code and evaluate new code and and do things like that, that the platform is just, they say is not allowed. So I would love to hear how you navigated these requirements to be able to get Elixir running on a device that Apple says, yes, we, we stamp accept that. So, I mean, I, I think there is like a misconception that there would be like a general uh, exemption on any kind of interpreted language. I don't think that's the case. And we see that on the App Store, you will actually find a lot of applic- like tons of applications that run with JavaScript, obviously. But you will also find applications that run with C Sharp from the .NET ecosystem. And you find will also find applications that are scripted with Lua, which is like an embeddable scripting language. Now, the restrictions that they do have is that you should not update it outside of the life cycle of the macOS store. And this is something that we totally comply with. So for, for the desktop version of the app, we actually have an auto-update mechanism that downloads new code. But for the Apple App Store application, that code pass, like they're all being disabled. And so to get like a new version of the app, you actually have to get like properly say like, I want to update the app. The initial publishing was taking probably two weeks. Like we had to go back and forth and make some more changes. Pushing updates is within 24 hours now for us, from us like pushing it to Apple and then they release it to the public. Goes quite well, better than I was expecting. I was expecting us to have like a week long delay every single release when we fix a bug or something, but it's not the case. How much do they enforce that updating out of the life cycle? I've seen other apps, like there's there's some popular Microsoft Code Push JavaScript library that like helps you update your bundle out of the lifecycle ban. And I see that all the time. It's a really good question. So like just from what I see in the feedback that we got from Apple versus uh, Google and like going through the app stores, what my impression was that Google does a lot of automated testing. We got immediate feedback, like it crashes on this device, like we had some initial problems and then we had to like look at the at the ports, but never like a single human looked at it on the Google side. And then on Apple, we had like the opposite experience. Uh, we actually published initially a version that did not work on iPads, like it would always crash on iPads. Apple did not have that, but we got like written feedback on some other aspects on the application, clearly indicating a human was trying to get through that. And so I think they have way more like human touch process there. And we interacted there with them. I don't think they put it into a chamber and look whether it like talks to the outside world and downloads files. I don't, I don't think any of that is happening. We did though still remove all of that update code because A, we wanted, we wanted an app that complies with everything. The way we do it, it would be silly obvious because like in the moment there's an update, it says like at the bottom bar, like there's an update, please update. For the Apple process, we have to provide like a demo account for the testers to log in. And then they would log into the demo account and then they would see like, oh, please update. Right? <laughs> if the user belongs to the demo account, hide the 
update banner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, you, you, I think there's a lot of things you can do or you could try to do, uh, but we, we didn't uh, want to try out how far we can go. We just wanted to comply. It's not only you're dealing with Apple, you're dealing with like the users of the platform and they're expecting apps to update when they press the update button. So it sounds like the, the review process is much more like from a user's perspective. Are they ever doing any kind of code review? Do they look for like specific, you know, pieces of code that might be susceptible to malicious use? How would they do that? If they have to accept all sorts of languages. You know, they can probably anticipate Objective-C. They can probably anticipate Swift. Are they going to know how to read and like a, a static and an analyze Elixir or Erlang or bytecode, you know, that kind of stuff? I wonder how much of that's going on here. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good question. I think what, one thing we learned is when we compiled OTP, so the Beam VM for iOS, that's basically a big uh, bundle of C code, right? So it's the, it's the official OTP release. And in OTP 25, which is now as a cert release candidate, like all the changes we did to make it run on iOS are actually part of that. So that official release, we compiled it down to C and we submit that as part of our app to the App Store. But it doesn't include the source code, right? I could imagine like when you do from Xcode, the upload of your app, that maybe they could see your swift source code somehow and review that but i'm i'm sure it's completely impossible to do any of that with the c stuff so they can probably see that the c stuff is calling some system calls or like that is JIT compiling maybe they could see something like that because it's pretty low level but i'm sure they can't really look into what it's doing on a logical level and then it's it seems like one step even more derived that that blob of C code is now taking Elixir code and doing something with that, which I think is the same for a .NET interpreter or like a Lua interpreter, anything anything like that. Interesting. I I may be misunderstanding you know this completely about how app stores generally work. It sounds like they don't really have access to the source code. I think you just submit the binary. They don't. I don't think they have access, but they probably scan the binary for like symbols and things that might indicate malicious or private APIs or... That is the case with the Google Play Store, that they do automated searches for known malware stuff because people will just kind of take malware and kind of stick it into some other app and like a Trojan horse kind of a thing. Yeah, and there's some capabilities that you have to flag it with to enable certain low-level features, like the JIT compilation, for example. You need to enable that as a flag in Apple, and you can you can do that, right? So they, they are actively supporting that for JavaScript and other languages, interpreted languages, because it means like your program writes into some code, into some data area, and then afterwards says, this data area is now a code area and please run it. Which, if you don't have this flag, like that's totally forbidden because malware also likes to do that kind of stuff. We were chatting before the show a little bit, and one of the big hurdles that you guys experienced getting your app into the App Store was, well, having the Erlang VM on you know, compiled on an iOS device. And you said something interesting. You guys made it happen. OTP 23, 24. So one of those later releases allowed for compiling on iOS and so that you guys are taking advantage of that. But it had actually been done way earlier too. Do you remember any specifics about that? I found something here and I'm curious if you remember anything about it. Yeah, so there has been a fork of OTP. So somebody went in and forked OTP and I think that was maybe seven years ago or eight years ago. Like it's a pretty old release. I think it's even like a 17 or six, like 
it's it definitely before the 20, 20 year series of releases. And so I looked at that initially, but it was so far away and not able to run our Elixir that we couldn't reuse it. I looked at that a bit, but decided ultimately on a different approach. The goal was to be have to have something that we can contribute back. Like we didn't want to fork OTP, then sit on this because like that's a problem, right? If you if you have this kind of huge project and you maintain it with like uh, three people on the dock, it's 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 not it's just not possible. <laughs> just making small changes and contributing them back. That was that was the approach instead we took. But I never tried that iOS version. I think there was even an app for some time. I don't know. Did you did you try that? Did you find it? I'm I'm actually curious about that. I found something, and it may, we might be looking at two different things. But I found something from Couchbase actually, where it looks like they forked or patched something Erlang version 14. So that that long ago. Just judging from the the GitHub description that they have here, is is the is a project to build static libraries for iOS containing the Erlang VM Beam, CouchDB drivers, and eMonk interface to SpiderMonkey. I don't know what that last part is, but in the last commit here on this branch, which is the redirect branch, doesn't actually include the code, is from 2013. So that's nine years ago at this point. But if I go to their master branch, last commit there was in 2011. So that's over 10 years ago where they were doing something on iOS. And I'm sure iOS back then looked, well, yeah, that was before Swift, right? That probably looked entirely different (laughs) back then. Anyway, I thought that was pretty cool. Like, you know, it's it, it looks like I don't know whether this project was successful or not, but it looks like it was done before, not really contributed back upstream for oh, I'm I'm totally assuming here. I don't know if they did or not, but it took a lot longer for Erlang OTP to to have that kind of support for you guys to be able to 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 take advantage of it. You know, 10 years later. Interesting like way that all this stuff kind of circles back around. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think I think probably it benefited a lot in those ten years just from the Mac ecosystem becoming much more interesting for Erlang developers. And I would say probably because of the Elixir community, really to a large degree, there have been a lot of improvements just to building the Beam on the macOS. They're driven a lot by more and more people actually just happen to running on Macs and with the M1 actually and the the relatively quick porting of the Beam VM to ARM, that also helped because iOS is always ARM. I would say we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. That being said, it was still like a fun journey to get it actually compiling for those small machines. The biggest challenge there was to get it into a single file. So you, you know, like it, when you install or like the Beam VM on your machine, it's like this folder with like tons of subfolders and many, many files inside there and many executables. That actually, this kind of thing, we can make it kind of run on Android pretty much as is. But for iOS, it's a no-no. It's like Apple says, like, you can't, you can't do that. You have to have provide one binary. We launch the binary and it works. That was like the fun challenge of actually removing all these external dependencies or kind of slurping them into one big static binary there. There's another project that's happening. It's not about oh, iOS, I don't believe, but I'm curious if you've had any run-ins with that 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 team, Digit and Quinn Wilton, about Burrito, because they're all about wrapping up Erlang and your project into a you know into an executable that is cross uh, or that you can cross compile this executable. I, I wonder if they have any wisdom in this, or if you guys. You know, I don't know. Have you ever met with them or talked to them about these similar problems? Probably. 
Unfortunately not. Unfortunately really not. Maybe I... Oh, we can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I would really like to get in, on some physical conference again and like get to meet... We should get a room of all these people trying to get uh, people like applications uh, that are running on desktop or mobile or like single thing like executables. I think though there's like a little bit different goals. It's It's relatively easy to make something that quickly makes your app launchable. It's unfortunately a different step if you actually want to make something that is signed and then goes into those app stores. It would be the best if that wouldn't be the case. That's unfortunately a big differentiator. As we talk through some of these challenges and difficulties that you encountered, it just makes me ask the question of, so why would you choose Elixir to do this? It seems like the technical hard road to take. You know, it's kind of swimming against the current, right? The, the current is Objective-C or today Swift. Like if you want to do something in the Apple ecosystem, you're using Swift. And like all the build tools, the, the the developer tools for building interfaces, they all exist around that. So why would you choose to go this other direction? I have to say it, it turned out to be pretty in- incremental, but but really I think out of the fact that we did not have many other options. So the the other option was to basically ignore all the base code that we have and rewrite it all in Swift or in C or in some other code language that we can take it to these other platforms uh, natively because it would not only be macOS, it would also be Windows and Android and Mac. So we looked actually at rewriting most of what we have in C so we can move it, bring it to all these platforms. Like with even with Swift, like we would still like, then it would be cross-compiling on the other platform. But it would just be so painful and in terms of like the the time investment that we looked for for quicker ways basically and so the quicker ways were actually initially approaches like burrito where we just made oh by the way i can actually start a ui pretty easily on linux like erlang has already built in this wx widgets toolkits and we start with something like that like really simple rudimentary uis and those were just like 10 more lines of code on the existing code base. So before we didn't have a UI, it was command line only, and then we had a UI. And then from there, it was like, it was really step by step. You could say like this, this Chinese saying, you're being killed by a thousand strokes. And so we made our pathway like stroke by stroke into these fully native applications. So if you if you start out with burrito or you start out with one of the other quick approaches, I think that that's really fun, and I think that's a natural way to just see whether what you have in mind actually works. But then being able to go like the full cycle into turning this into a native app that people can download, and especially painful I find on on Windows, not only because of the technicals but because of the lack of documentation. Like, how do you actually deploy a Windows application today? If you find like the the website that says that, I would be tremendously thankful. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't, right? You just have an exe f- uh, hosted on your website, and you just download it and tell them go execute it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or you pay hundreds of dollars for a proprietary installer, you know, that will stick your stuff all over the system. <laughs> exactly. That's 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 the way I think. Yeah. So that's super fascinating, and. Um, we had to go through all of that and learn about code signing and get users complain that their antivirus software is saying it's a virus. Find all this, the flags you have to set and the checksums you have to update to not be that. The solution to that is just turning off the virus, the antivirus, right? That's <laughs> obviously the solution. That's the, yeah, for Mac users, it, that, that's trivial, but <laughs> Windows users don't always have the same attitude. So with the diode app, I did want to understand where the app 
integrates with the platform, you have this idea of a bridge where some of the concepts are, what are some of the things that you need to integrate with? Are, are you doing notifications from the Elixir side that are pushing an, a notification to show up on the device? And does it run in the background? Those kinds of things where you have to talk directly with the platform that you're being hosted in, how do you make that work? Similar to what I said earlier, I think we the, the pattern we usually do is like the one of least resistance. And so what we started out with with the bridge is we um, took the existing WX widgets function calls and interfaces that already exist in Erlang, but mocked them out for iOS and Android. Because on iOS and Android, we are not compiling the WX widgets and we don't have any of those drivers. At the end of the day, when it wants to show a notification, it still does like WX show message, right? There's a, there's a function call for that. And if it wants to show a window, it does like WX show window. So all of these calls are there. And then what we do is like everything that is coming from that prefix, everything that's coming from a WX module, we turn it into JSON and send it via the bridge to the native side of uh, the iOS application or the Android application. And then we have that same bridge module on the iOS and Android side, and it's taking those messages and turning it into a native notification or a native URL opening or a native correspondence of, uh, of that function call. It's right now like super thin. And I think what we have internally has actually more uh, than what is published in Alexa Desktop. I think that, that will need an update in the future. But that has been the approach so far. Unfortunately, those the native bindings are very different. Just Android and iOS behave differently. And so it's similarly as WX Widget itself works differently on Windows and macOS, and they have created this compatibility layer. That bridge is kind of the compatibility layer to the OS functions. Would be really nice if someone else would uh, would take care of that. But we found that actually for the app itself to work, it's we really need very very little. Just basically open open a web view and show the Phoenix app of that. But then for more interesting interactions with the platform, you said like accessing contacts. But in our case, actually, it's about sharing, sharing files. So you want to share a picture and upload into your diode drive, or you want to, from the diode drive, open the file in a different app. Those kind of interactions then have to be happening on the native side in Swift or in Android in Kotlin. So you said everything that starts with WX goes to this bridge. How do you call it from, I'm I'm assuming you have some live view module where you say like, call this native share function and it kind of like translates all the information and, and sends it off to your your bridge component? Yeah, so a lot of that we already have now existing applications. So like show messages, for example. If you check out Alexi Desktop, it has like a show notification uh, function. And so Alexi Desktop will actually do that wrapping for you. So if you say like show notification, it does the right thing on Windows and on Mac. And But if you're running on Android, then it will know there's no WX backend, but instead there's a bridge. So it starts your bridge up and then sends a message to the bridge. And then it depends on your bridge on the other side to actually take that message and, and show it in the way you want it to show. So I just want to call out that the bridge project is under the Elixir desktop organization, and it is a separate little project. We have a link to this in the show notes so people can refer to that as well, what we're talking about there. I think that's like the the simplest approach. It's not a very clean approach, I would say. That's my own impression of that because it's kind of taking the baggage of all the WX interfaces and that means it's A, too much, 
because there's a lot of things in WX widget that we don't need at all on the bridge. And it's also too little because there's many more things that the mobile platforms have for which WX widgets does not have a correspondence. It's a quick start, but I think as we, as we see things progress, it will, it will have to deviate from that. If someone else, they're hearing this and they're saying, man, I have this idea for an app I wanted to create on iOS and I'd love to do an Elixir. You've mentioned a couple of times the Elixir desktop project, which we want to talk more about in a second too. But is there any sample repos or code or anything like that where people could start from to say, I want to follow in the path that you've gone with putting something on iOS? There are two sample projects. There's the Android sample project and there's an iOS sample project which both are actually like the iOS sample project is an Xcode project. So you can just open it in your Xcode and get going and launch the simulator within Alexia app within that. The simplest one is you do that and then you fork those repos and just turn the app into the app of your dreams. On your second comment on Alexia desktop, yeah, that last time we talked, I was, I was mentioning that I'm looking for a different name. And I, I'm still not happy with the name, but I also couldn't couldn't find like that great other name, so I just stuck with, with what where we are. But the main problem is Alexa Desktop is actually used for both. So Alexa Desktop is what is being used for mobile and for the desktop deployments. And so in the Alexa Desktop project, there's other repositories. There's a deployment repository and a runtimes repository, and in the runtimes is actually a CI that compiles the runtimes for Android and for iOS. So that's the binary package of the Erlang VM that you need to run any kind of Erlang or Alexa code. The deployment project is what you need to package macOS and uh, Windows and Linux apps. That part, unfortunately, is not complete yet, as we are also changing that internally. But for iOS and Android, the packaging is actually the simplest, because from the Xcode project, you just basically say build and archive, and that's uh, doing all of it. So you'd mentioned what previously when you're talking about WX widgets and some of the features, you're saying that it was a Phoenix app is what you were running. So I just want to be clear on this. So when people are interacting with this app and seeing it, what they're actually seeing is a web page rendered in a web view. And is it a live view app? Alexia Desktop is built around the idea of actually running live view apps, based live view apps on your desktop. What it's doing is open like an initial primary window in which it shows just the website of your Phoenix project. And then from there, all the interactions just follow the interaction of a, of a live view application. So you can add routes, you add your modules, you uh, can use Ecto to interact with a database, which has been a couple of times a question. So what we are using as database is SQLite because it's, it's very small. It's also available on Android and iOS. And so you get something for local applications that you can still query from with Live View very nicely and still have all these live interactions that you expect from a desktop app. Like you, something is being changed in the backend and you get the live update in your UI immediately of, of that happening all through the existing uh, infrastructure there from Elixir. I love that. It's just going to be so fast, you know, just th that serving it up like zero latency to have the WebSocket connection to a live push changes that, that might be syncing in the background and just do little notifications. Oh, this file has shown up for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I like if the days would have more hours, I would like to really create more apps just because I felt like the now that it runs on these platforms, like the, uh, the possibilities are, are endless, like the amount of applications you can create pretty quickly, really 
just from live views and then bringing them locally with existing actor support is, is massive. I think the, the potential is huge. So you mentioned a couple times we are doing this. Like, is there a company behind this? Is Are you the primary developer on all of this? Yeah, so there's a company behind this. I think I would say if, like, for Alexa Desktop, I'm clearly the primary developer behind behind that. If there's issues and if there's plumbing to do, then that's also me who's actually doing doing that. On Diode Drive and the application we have there and also the other components that we have there, apart from Alexa Desktop, that's what, like, the whole team is working on the Diode team. And we're like five people right now doing that. And if you check the repos, you will see the distribution a bit. And you'd mentioned before the show that we were just talking about Elixir Desktop and you're asking us if we had played with it and you're like, because I'm looking for feedback. So what is it you're wanting from people, someone who listens to this? What's your call to action for them? Yeah, please, please go ahead. Check out the, the repos. Start with your own itch, I would say. Like, if you want to create a desktop app, start with that pass and check out the desktop example app. If you want to create a mobile app, check out uh, that example app, clone it locally and try it out. And please give feedback. I sometimes feel maybe people go there, try it out, and it doesn't work, but they don't leave feedback. Um, So please provide feedback and, and maybe even assume it won't run on the first time. I have this expert blindness on these things because also like because of my feedback, my my history, I have no problem of going to the C level and then from the C level to the Erlang level and then from the Erlang level to the Alexia level and figure out where like where it's stuck right now. And I know that it's not it's not for everyone like that. So please give give feedback. Let us let us know where issues are and then let's make this a better experience for everyone and make it really productive. So with that, are you open to contributions where someone starts using this and they say, you know, I really would like to see this other little bridge feature that would tie into something with the platform. Are you open to PRs and things like that, of that nature? Definitely, definitely. The more, the merrier. (laughs) (laughs) You'd ask for like maybe a different word to describe it because it's called Elixir Desktop, which might impose that feeling of like, well, this only works on desktop, right? And totally ignores the whole mobile aspect here, which is like basically like why, why what we're talking about today. There's a couple of words that I thought of. Elixir Portable, maybe? Portable Elixir. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> I don't know. It's more it's more generic. It might be too generic. Another one is a multi-platform, like Elixir multi-platform or Elixir cross-platform. When I hear those words, I also think that Burrito helps sit in that area as well because they're about cross-platform you know releases as well but just not about mobile not about wrapping it up in a, in a desktop application kind of thing and that's why I, th- I feel like there there might be a way here for these two kinds of libraries to help to help each other out right like you said wx widgets kind of helps bridge that gap between these multiple platforms on the desktop at least or you can go, you know, the, the the different route and just call it something like cheeseburger or something, you know, like just something completely, <laughs> completely different. I think that's the Alexia way, actually. I think I think that's what I see there. There's a lot of um, terms that that come from like like fantasy terms or come from some other theme, and then are being used for that, which is great. I'm just not creative enough, I'm afraid. <laughs> you can call it like elixir unintended or elixir <laughs> we didn't mean for elixir to ever do this something some some word to <laughs> yeah there was someone coming up with the idea of uh, chimera i think that was uh, i'm not sure how you pronounce chimera and i like that 
a lot. But there's an existing project, and I didn't want. I felt like stealing stealing the name. But I, I like that. I, I also really, as you said, David, I really like the idea of creating a synergy between the projects. I think what I'm, what probably is gonna be a synergy is having binaries of these different Erlang deployments because that's that's the biggest pain point right now. You need like an OTP 25 version for iOS. You need one for Android. You need one for Mac ARM or you need one for Mac Intel. And right now the answer to that is, well, compile it yourself <laughs> and then sign it. <laughs> and that's just super painful. That's just super painful. So I think that's something where as, as this develops, I think it would be really good for us to have a repo similar as, as you experience brew with the bottles, right? Where you have a repo where all these binaries are pre-compiled already and you just can download them and get started. And I think all of these projects would benefit from, uh, from that. That's very cool. Well, I am really excited to see where this goes. This is a project I want to play with, right? I have ideas. It's like, I've always wanted to create an iOS app. I've never gone so far as to do it. I've like looked at different cross-platform ways of doing it, like web technologies for building like JavaScript front ends for iOS and Android. and Cordova. Yeah, Cordova is an example. And Phone gap. Yeah. yeah, all those kinds of things. But it's like, but but then you still have to like, the server is going to be an Elixir, right? I'm not going to do that in the front end. So I still want to use Elixir. And then it's like, this This is like, this makes it possible. This is so exciting. This is like, wow, maybe I can, I can actually live the dream, right? You know, people were so excited about doing JavaScript on the server because they're already doing the front end. I want to do Elixir on the front end. That's, that's the dream for me. <laughs> exactly. It's super fun. I can only recommend that for everyone. We're doing all the development on desktop. And then basically the, the desktop app, you can just like turn the window you see into the mobile view. And you know, like what you, what you see is what you get. It's going to look exactly the same way and behave the same way on mobile. And it's super easy to develop like that. And then we can push directly to Android, get the, the beam binaries updated. And you have instantly like our nightly builds uh, to the development devices. You instantly have the new version. It's, it's super fun. I don't want to go back to anything else ever, you know? And I assume you're able to work with like the iOS virtual devices, like the little, the, the emulator, the emulator. Yeah, exactly. Well, if people want to follow you or get in touch with you or follow the project, where should they go to do that? I have a Twitter handle. I'm not too active on Twitter, but from time to time, if you have large updates, I'm, I'm posting something there. So if you're kind of curious and don't want to waste too much time, you can, uh, you can follow me there. If you want to get in contact, you can either join our Telegram channel that is only about diode and if you want to get a check out elixir desktop uh, join the elixir slack that would be my recommendation and there's a desktop channel that i'm hovering and just ping me and send a message if your language is code go to github and create a pull request or an issue i i'm i'm watching all of these repos so that's really cool I will have links to all that in the show notes, but I'm excited to see where this goes. And I've been very much just kind of sitting on the sideline, enjoying watching your journey here. And I was super excited to see this major milestone of being in the App Store for the Play Store and the Apple App Store and really launching with that service and that product that you've been working on for some time. I'm excited about that. I can't wait to see what you guys do. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.